morning. Sleep last night. I see some some groggy. Some, oh, there we are. I see some groggy faces out there. You guys, uh, you guys, bless me. Fun to see a group of young people that are excited about the Lord, excited to learn, hungry, sleepless night, but you're still here. You're ready to go. So, highlights from from uh, the retreat so far. Basketball. Basketball. Good. What else? Murder in the dark? Is that what you said? Okay, awesome, good. Are we are we missing anybody this morning? Football players, the food, Big John. Yeah. Okay. What else? Wasn't the sunrise amazing this morning? Man, that pink hue. Awesome. What else? Sleepless night. Sleepless night. You're thankful for that. Good. Nap, nap this afternoon. Pastor Brian shared last night. Highlights from that. What did you guys jot down in your notes? What did you take away from that? The sufficiency of Scripture. Sufficiency of Scripture. Evangelism. Good. The theme of this weekend. Good. Any other specifics from last night? I wasn't here. I hope to make it over. But... Singular authority. Good. Yeah, especially in our day and age where that's being attacked more than ever. Yeah. He talked a lot about attacks on Scripture from Satan through different means. Yep. Awesome. Any others? Yep. The orange game. The orange game? I heard about the orange game. I, did you guys get any video of that? <laughs> it's already on YouTube. <laughs> or Facebook or whatever. Awesome. Good. All right. Well, I want to share. You know what? Let's pray before we get started. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to drive out here in, in the beautiful Paradise Valley and, and uh, just to be able to share with this group of young people. Lord, I thank you for the, the hearts and the lives represented here. Father, that each one of these people have been ordained before the, the creation of the world to be yours and to be used by you. And Father, in these last days that we're living, God, we, we need more than ever young people to to rise up and to, to grab hold of your word, to stand on the rock of your word and, and to share truth. And so, God, I just pray that, that you'd use our time, that you'd empower these young people, Lord, that you'd change the world through them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read a story here to you. Get the blood flowing a little bit. Some of you have maybe heard this. There's, there's some different renditions of it. It says, in most of the United States, there's a policy of checking on any stalled vehicle on the highway when the temperatures drop to single digits or below. About 3 a.m., one very cold morning, Montana State Trooper Alan Nixon, number 658, responded to a call. There was a car off the shoulder of the road outside Great Falls, Montana. He located the car with North Dakota plates stuck in the deep snow and with the engine still running. Pulling in behind the car with his emergency lights on, the trooper walked to the driver's door to find an old man passed out behind the wheel with a nearly empty vodka bottle on the seat beside him. The driver came awake and the trooper tapped on the window. Seeing the rotating lights in his rearview mirror, the state trooper standing next to his car, the man panicked. He jerked the gear shift into drive and hit the gas. The car's speedometer was showing 20, 30, 40, and then 50 miles an hour, but it was stuck in the snow, wheels spinning. Trooper Nixon, having a sense of humor, began running in place next to the speeding... <laughs> 
stationary car. The driver was completely freaked out, thinking the trooper was actually keeping up with him. This goes on for about 30 seconds, and then the trooper yells, Pull over! The man nodded, turned his wheel, and stopped the engine. Needless to say, the man from North Dakota was arrested and is probably still shaking his head over the state trooper in Montana who could run 50 miles an hour. <laughs> Good stuff. All right, the blood's flowing a little bit. So, I'm gonna, this will be interactive. I'm going to ask you guys questions, try to get you guys engaged here. So, throw out some names of some famous missionaries that you can think of. Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott. George Whitfield. George Whitfield. David Livingston. David Livingston. Mueller. Gladys Elburn. Gladys Elburn. Ooh, there's one you don't hear too often. Okay, others? Adam Iron Judson. Okay, good. Others? Eric Little. Eric Little. David Brainerd. Good. Jesus. Jesus. Oh, the Apostle Paul. Who's a good one? Okay, name some famous Bible teachers, some people that maybe even in our present day that you think, man, they're just phenomenal Bible teachers. John MacArthur. Pastor Travis. Pastor Travis, yeah. Wait till I'm done. <laughs> Others. Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Who? <laughs> Matt Tebow's wife. Hey, I bet she can bring the word, huh? I bet she can bring the word. Awesome. Famous evangelists. Billy Graham. Who else? Paul Washer. Washer, good. Who else? Whitfield. Moody. Moody was an evangelist. So I throw that out there, and Matt maybe is cheating a little bit because he knows what I'm talking about this morning. But in all those categories, wouldn't we say the greatest ever is Jesus? The greatest missionary ever, Jesus. To leave heaven, to leave perfection, and to come to this broken, sinful world in pursuit of us. What greater missionary than Jesus? Is there a greater teacher of truth ever that the world has seen than Jesus? Is there a greater evangelist that the world has ever seen than Jesus? So, and when Matt asked me to share, he kind of threw out the hook for me a little bit. He said, Kind of in so many words, you can talk about Jesus. And I said, sign me up. I'm there. I love talking about Jesus. I love studying the Gospels. Folks, you'll never find a better example in any of those categories than Jesus. You'll never find a greater Bible teacher. You'll never find a greater missionary. You'll never find a greater evangelist than Jesus. So if we're talking about evangelism, what better person to study than Jesus? Amen? Amen? Amen. Come on, all right. So let's do it. So I got two stories I want to share with you. Taking notes, it'll be Luke chapter 5, the first one that we'll share. And the second will be in Mark, end of chapter 4, and on into chapter 5. And these two stories are favorites of mine in the Gospels for a number of reasons. But I think, as again, we think about the theme of, of evangelism and words with power, the, the sufficiency of Scripture in evangelism. These two stories I like because the story in Luke chapter 5 reminds me that Jesus has recruited you and I to go win souls. He's recruited us to go and bring the message of the gospel. Anybody need pens? Alex is bringing the pens down the aisle. 
Right. You guys are note takers. I like it. Good stuff. So Luke chapter 5. Luke 5 reminds me that Jesus has recruited you and I to go and be his ambassadors in the world. Some of you out here, athletes, you've been recruited. Recruited to Montana State, maybe other schools. There's, that's quite a process. I love hearing the stories about how athletes get recruited to Montana State. Fun stories, you know. But it means that somebody is after you. Somebody wants you. Somebody's pursuing you to get you to bring your talents, whatever they might be, to their school. Folks, Jesus is pursuing every one of us. He's recruiting every one of us to go be fishers of men. And that's what we're going to look at in Luke chapter 5. And then Mark, into chapter 4 and into chapter 5, this one may be my favorite story in all the Gospels because it reminds me that Jesus, folks, he's desperate to go save sinners. He goes out of his way to reach out to people who are broken and hurting and lost and just abandoned by everyone else. And Jesus goes after those people. I love it. Good stuff. You guys ready? You guys ready? Yeah. Okay. So before we jump into that, I want to talk about your theme because I think it's important. I don't want to deviate from that. Words with power, the sufficiency of scripture in evangelism. So when I think about church stuff or when I think about teaching or when I think about missions or when I think about evangelism or when I think about life, really, just about anything, I always try to think, how would Jesus handle that situation? What would Jesus do in this particular situation? Now, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. When I was your guys' age, the cool thing was WWJB bracelets. You've probably never heard of those, right? Anybody heard of those? Oh, my word. What would Jesus do? And everybody wore WWJD bracelets. It's a great question to ask. What would Jesus do? How would Jesus handle this situation? So as I thought about this message and preparing for it, and I've thought about this over the years, thinking about Jesus and his methods. How does Jesus approach evangelism? How does Jesus approach teaching? You know, and as a Bible teacher, I'm always thinking, man, how, how did he do that? How did he bring such clarity to things? And I always want to study and learn Jesus because he was the best. And so as I studied this, this particular topic, you know, Jesus and evangelism, and how did he evangelize? Studying the different parts of the scriptures and the, the New Testament gospels particularly, I was amazed at how, and really it shocked me to see how very little Jesus actually references the Old Testament or references Scripture because they didn't have the New Testament then. But he didn't reference it a whole lot in his teaching or in his evangelism. And that shocked me because I would think when Jesus was talking and sharing, he would constantly be quoting Old Testament passages, don't you think? So it kind of shocked me when I, when I looked at that. And you guys can dig into it yourselves. One particular, and I'll mention two, but one example of that is John chapter 3. Maybe the most famous evangelistic passage that we have in all of the, the Gospels. Two passages in particular that pop out. John 3.3, 3. anyone know what that says? You must be born again. John 3.16, anyone know what that says? Jesus there is interacting with a guy named... Nicodemus comes to him at night. He's one of the religious leaders, and he's asking Jesus, hey, how do you do this stuff that you do? you got power, and we don't understand it. And Jesus begins to interact with him. And in that passage, Jesus never quotes an Old Testament scripture. Now, he makes a reference to Moses lifting up the snake in the desert, but he never quotes a specific Old Testament passage. And yet, in my opinion, Nicodemus' life 
was changed. You see Nicodemus at the end when Jesus had been crucified. He was there preparing his body for burial. I believe Nicodemus got born again. So here's a life that got changed, but Jesus never actually used Scripture, as we would think of it, in his evangelism there. I'm getting some blank stares here. I'm, I'm going to get there. It's going to make sense. Okay, hang with me. Hang with me. I'm not going to preach heresy this morning. <laughs> John chapter 4, the next chapter. Jesus meets with a, a Samaritan woman at a well there. He goes out of his way. He goes into Samaria. He goes into a place where Jewish people didn't go because Samaritans were half-breeds. They were a mixed race, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. Jesus purposefully goes into that area because he knew that there was a woman there who needed to be loved on. That Samaritan woman who had had how many husbands? Anyone remember? I think five, right? And she had one that she was living with who wasn't her husband at the time. And Jesus interacts with her and reaches out to her and loves on her. But again, Jesus never quotes any Old Testament scripture there. But yet, a life was changed. In fact, the whole town was impacted by that story. Few reasons I think Jesus himself didn't quote a bunch of scripture, or he didn't do it every time he shared. The first reason is this. Jesus brought a new dispensation when he came to this earth. Now, John 1.17 says this, the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through who? Jesus Christ. So in the Old Testament, God worked among his people through the law, the Ten Commandments. You approach God and you've got to do these, you've you got to follow the commandments, you've got to follow the, the series of uh, ceremonial washing and sacrifice, and you have to do all those things to be able to approach God. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes and he brings a new dispensation, and it's a dispensation of grace. And the message is this. You don't have to work for God's approval. You just come to him through Jesus. It's a free gift. It's not by your efforts and your works. It's by grace, right? You guys go to, most of you, Grace Bible Church, right? Grace is a good word. I love the word grace. So Jesus brings a new dispensation, okay? Not the law, it's grace. And so he's bringing some different things to the table that people really hadn't thought of before. It was there in the Old Testament, but they hadn't thought of it. The second reason is this. John 1, verse 1. Anyone know what it says? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who's that talking about? Jesus was the Word of God in flesh. When Jesus spoke, everything he said was what? Because he's God, right? Everything he said is the word of God because he's God. Isn't that crazy to think about? Everything that Jesus said was the word of God because he was God. So Jesus, I mean, unlike us, we're not God. Jesus is God. He, he, anything he said was the word of God by virtue of the fact that he was God. Incredible. The third reason is this. Every story, everything that's put out there in the Gospels for us, every story about Jesus and his life, folks, it's scripture, it's truth, and it's, in my opinion, sufficient in evangelism. Trav, what are you telling us? What are you suggesting, that we shouldn't use scripture in evangelism? Absolutely not. What I'm telling you is that when you evangelize, I'm going to throw a different angle out there for you guys. Study Jesus. He's the best evangelist you're ever going to hear about, you're ever going to read about, you're ever going to learn about. Study his methods. Study the stories in the Gospels about Jesus and about how he interacted with people. 
use that part of scripture in your evangelism. I think it's so powerful. Okay? That was my preface. Now are we ready to jump in? Luke chapter 5. You guys still with me? Any sleepers out there yet? You wouldn't tell me if you were because you'd be sleeping. Luke chapter 5. Let me read it to you. Starting in verse 1. It says, One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Oh, master, we worked hard all night. Some of you stayed up all night. Peter stayed up all night fishing, and he says, We haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. If we were to start reading in Luke chapter 1, and we would get to this part of the story, we would think, wow, that Peter is amazing. Jesus shows up at the lake and cast your nuts on the other side, all in fish, and come follow me. And Peter leaves everything. And he goes and follows Jesus. Wow. We think of the disciples sometimes like there are people that hover six inches above the ground. They got halos above their heads. <laughs> Folks, they're, they're real people just like you and I are. And they struggled with stuff. The more you study the Gospels, you realize that these guys, man, they had issues. They had problems. When you study the Gospels, it's my strong opinion that this here in Luke chapter 5 is actually at least the third time that Jesus called Peter into his service. And this was the one, that, the straw that broke the camel's back, if you would, where Peter finally said, okay, I'm in, Jesus. The first one, I believe, in John chapter 1, you can read about it, tells us that John, uh, John the Baptist had disciples that followed him. And one day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it said a couple of his disciples then went and started to follow Jesus and interact with him. And one of those guys, anyone remember? What was his name? Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So Andrew, okay, now think, think with me here. If Andrew's a guy that's following John the Baptist as one of his disciples, and John, or excuse me, Andrew and Peter were fishing partners because they're brothers, do you think Andrew ever talked to Peter about John the Baptist? Oh man, he's just amazing. I love this guy. Gotta come hear him. He's kind of the, the, the religious nutcase, maybe, in Peter's opinion. Oh, Andrew, you're always talking about these preacher guys. Right? So, you guys still with me? Okay. I get excited about this stuff. (laughs) So Andrew meets Jesus. And immediately it says he goes and he tells his brother, Hey, we found the one that's the Messiah. you got to come meet him. He brings Peter to Jesus. And Peter looks at Peter. Or Jesus looks at Peter. His name was Simon at that point. He says, "You're, You're Simon, but you will be called Cephas. Peter, which means the rock. In my opinion, that was an invitation for Peter to come and follow as one of Jesus' disciples. Hey, I'm going to change your name. 
I'm going to give you a new nature and a new character. Come and follow me. I believe without question it was an invitation. The second one, the second invitation that Jesus gave is in Matthew chapter 4. You can read it there. Jesus, he's walking along the Sea of Galilee. comes across two brothers, Andrew and Peter. They're messing with their nets because they're fishermen. And he says, guys, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Again, if you look at the chronology, if you dig into this stuff, if you compare the gospel accounts, I believe Peter went back to his fishing nets. He went and followed Jesus for a little while, maybe for a day. Hey, this is cool. All right, man. I got fish I got to catch because I got to feed my family. He went back to the nets. And that's where Jesus shows up in Luke chapter 5. Peter's been out fishing all night. And how many fish did he catch? Fishermen like to tell stories, don't they? Oh, man, it was this big. Peter's got no story to tell because he caught nothing that night. All night long, he didn't catch anything. So Jesus shows up and he says, hey, can I use your boat? I want to teach the people. And we'll talk about this later. When you're there, and I've been to Israel one time, unbelievable. If you ever get the chance to go, do it. So he's there and he's, he's using the water as a natural amplification system. When you're there on the Sea of Galilee, it's incredible how sound travels because of that lake. So Jesus sits in Peter's boat and he teaches the people. And then he tells Peter, hey, I want you to go out and cast your nets on the other side of the boat. Go out into the deep water and cast your nets out. Now, if you're a fisherman in that area in that day, there's two things that are wrong with what Jesus said. You don't go in the middle of the day to fish, and you don't go out into the deep water. The way that they fished, you catch them in the shallow water. If you're a fisherman, right, you might take advice from other fishermen who know what they're doing. But you're not going to probably take fishing advice from a golfer who's never fished before. So here comes this preacher guy. That Peter's kind of followed a little bit, but he's not quite sold. He hasn't quite jumped in. And he says, this is what I want you to do. And I think if it was me, I'd be thinking, oh, you've got to be kidding me. What are you talking about? You're the preacher guy. I'm the fisherman. Let me fish. You preach. But Peter does. He steps out in obedience to the Lord. And they catch so many fish, it says the nets begin to break. Signal their partners, James and, James and John. Hey, come help us. And they come and I mean, the boats are just overflowing, right? And Peter and Jesus have this incredible interaction there. Look what Peter says. He says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Why does Peter say that? Why does he say that? There's no real wrong answer here. Well, there could be some wrong answers, but you guys are smart enough. Why does he say, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man? Realizing his own sinfulness in light of the Lord's holiness. Good, yeah. I'm a sinner. You're holy. I mean, imagine, folks, being a part of that incredible miracle there. <laughs> a professional fisherman fishes all night and doesn't catch anything. Jesus said, go to the worst part of the lake in the worst part of the day, throw it on your nets for catch. <laughs> Unbelievable miracle. He's blown away. I think part of his response there to Jesus was this. I think, I think Peter is recognizing that this guy Jesus has called me a number of times before. He's invited me into his service. He's invited me to be one of his guys, one of his disciples. And I've chosen to go back to what? 
what's comfortable, what's convenient, what I know, what makes sense. And when he realizes that Jesus is there again, and he's calling him still, and he's showing him incredible grace, I think Peter's just blown away, and he realizes, man, this guy is altogether something incredibly, far more unbelievable than I could ever imagine. This guy, this Jesus is incredible. And he's just blown away. He's broken by it. Some of you, in my opinion, are, well, we'll get there. I'm jumping ahead of myself. One more question. Why does Jesus tell him here? He says, Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch man. Why does Jesus say, don't be afraid to Peter? Huh? He's given up his job. Yeah. Means of providing for his family. There'd be fear in that. Why else? Any other any other thoughts? Just Jesus' power and authority. Yeah. I mean, you're calling me to come and follow you with all this incredible, miraculous power that you have? Who am I, right? Any other thoughts? I think also if you were just like fishing, didn't catch anything, you realize like how powerful this guy is that just calls me to catch a bunch of fish, you might be kind of scared. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about from a fisherman's perspective, like you just said, you fished all night. You're a professional fisherman. It's your livelihood. Your family depends on it. You fished all night with all your best tricks, and you came up with what? (coughs) Goose egg. Nothing. And here's this guy that comes along, this preacher guy who probably has never fished a day in his life, and he tells you to go to the worst part of the lake, worst part of the day, and you haul in this unbelievable (coughs) catch of fish. And now he's saying... Come and follow me and I'm going to make you what? A fisherman of men. Well, folks, when you study the Gospels, there really isn't much that gives us any indication that Peter's a good fisherman. (laughs) There's a couple stories, in fact, where we think, oh man, this guy's terrible. John chapter 21, same thing as Luke chapter 5. And so what you're telling me, Jesus, is you're calling me a pathetic fisherman to come and follow you to be a fisher of... Man? Well, yeah, that's going to work out real good, right? But I think Peter at this point, he's realizing, and Jesus calls it out and he says, Peter, don't be afraid. I know that you feel inadequate. I know that you're scared. I know that you don't think that any good can come from you, but let me promise you this. The same God, me, who did what I just did with those fish, I can do that in your life and allow you to catch people. And some of you are afraid of the call to go catch men. You're scared and you're timid. And when people talk about evangelism or witnessing you, you freak out. Some of you don't, but many of you do. And you know what? It's natural. You're not a freak. You're not weird. We look at stories like this and we see that one of the guys that Jesus called to be one of his closest companions, one of the three that was always with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, he was fearful and he was timid and he was scared at times. He wasn't perfect. He didn't have his act all together. Peter's a fun study if you've never studied him in the Gospels. Man, he's taken his foot out only to put the other one in (laughs) most of the time. Some of you guys are afraid, though, 
to catch man. I've been afraid before. You guys all know you have those opportunities and, and it's right there in front of you and you just, ah, oh, you miss it, right? You guys can relate. I'm encouraged by this story because Jesus still recruited Peter. He still went after Peter. He still said, Peter, I want to use you. And he's still going to do it for you guys. Is that encouraging to you? That blesses me because Jesus doesn't give up on us. Next story, Mark chapter 4, if you'd flip there. Mark chapter 4. We'll start in verse 35 and then we'll continue on in, or start in uh, end of chapter 4 and then continue on into chapter 5. Verse 35 of chapter 4, it says, That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Verse 38, Jesus was in the stern, freaking out and scared. No, it says he was what? He's sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and he said, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. Interesting side note there. If you study, if you dig into the original language, the word that Jesus uses here when he rebukes the wind is most often used for when Jesus is rebuking demons. And so many people believe that this storm that came up was inspired by the enemy to keep Jesus from going to do what Jesus was about to do. Those of you who know the story, you know what happens here. Jesus said in verse 40, he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And then they went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell at his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. It probably would have been louder and freakier than that, but there's my, there's my demon-possessed voice. <laughs> For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Folks, a legion in the Roman army was 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen and then various other personnel. When you talked about legion in that day, the image that came to mind was organized power. Strength. The Roman army, wow. And this legion, more than likely, this legion of demons, 6,000 strong or more. I mean, it's just unbelievable to think about the oppression in this guy's life. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside, verse 11. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs, the first Biblical reference of deviled ham there, right? The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank. 
They rush down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen seen it had told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. Can you imagine? We don't want you here. Get out. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. What an unbelievable story. One of my favorites in all the Gospels. Now, this could have been one of the highlights. It was one of the highlights of my trip to Israel when we were there in the Sea of Galilee. We spent time in Capernaum, which I believe Jesus was at at the beginning of the story where they sailed from over to the region of the Gerasenes. Capernaum was the, the hometown of Peter and was Jesus' home base during his ministry. So we're there in, in Capernaum. We're down on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and we're looking across the lake to the region where this story took place, the other side, the Gerasenes. Distance of about five miles across the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee. And I picture this in my mind. I picture Jesus with his disciples there in Capernaum, sitting at a campfire. And, of course, this we don't have this recorded, but I'm just imagining that things like this probably happen. Jesus is hanging out with his guys around the fire on the Sea of Galilee. And they're looking up at the stars and they're thinking about how incredible God's creation is. And all of a sudden, they hear this blood-curdling scream. They say that when you're out in the, in the wilderness, you can hear a wolf howl from six miles away in the forest. If it's clear and if it's open, you can hear them from ten miles away. Five miles away, and again, keep in mind that lake acted as a natural amplification system. I don't have any question in my mind that when those disciples were with Jesus in Capernaum at night, on a clear night, they could hear that guy screaming over in the Gerasenes. And of course, they had to have known the stories about this guy. They had to have heard about this crazy demon-possessed guy who didn't have any clothes on. It says he went around naked in the Gospel of Luke. They tried to chain him and bind him, and he'd break the chains. Literally, he'd smash them to pieces, the Greek text tells us. He'd just obliterate them. And can you imagine being with Jesus around that campfire and the, the, the light shining off his face and hearing this guy screaming from across the lake? And, and what was the expression on Jesus' face? To hear this guy who's being tormented by the enemy. And the disciples are watching the face of Jesus. I mean, uncomfortable for those disciples probably. What, what do we do, that crazy guy? <laughs> and Jesus' heart was broken for him. His heart was broken. If you compare the gospel accounts, it says that Jesus went at night as night was setting in. That's when he decided to jump in the boat and head across. <laughs> Yikes. That, was not, that would not be the time that I would choose to go across the lake to a graveyard 
to go rescue a demon-possessed guy, right? I mean, that's the stuff that horror movies are made of. And that's when Jesus, if you compare the gospel accounts, if you look at Mark, that's when it says Jesus goes across the lake with his disciples. Folks, I would have been freaked out. Unbelievably freaked out. Even if I was a fisherman who knew that lake, like at least seven of those guys did, I would have been freaked out. Jesus goes to a place that no devout Jew would ever go to because the region of the Gerasenes was was a region where backslidden Jews went because they mingled with other non-Jews or Gentiles. A good devout Jew would never go to that region. A good devout Jew would never go to that region because the story tells us that they had pigs. Jews and pigs didn't mix. Jesus, or not Jesus, but a good devout Jew would never have gone to that region because there was a graveyard there. And for a Jew to come in contact with dead bodies would would make them ceremonially unclean. It says that the guy would cut himself with stones, probably full of blood from trying to commit suicide, possibly. A Jew coming in contact with a person with blood like that would cause them to be unclean. Folks, Jesus crossed every boundary to go and meet that man. It doesn't make sense. It wouldn't have made sense to a devout Jew, but Jesus crosses all those boundaries for what reason? Why did he go? Why did he go? Why did he risk danger to himself and his disciples? Why did he risk people scoffing and mocking his ministry for going and mingling with those who were backslidden Jews? Why would, why would he risk people looking down on him because he's around pigs and around a graveyard and around this freaky guy with demons who's cutting himself? Why would he do that? It's a pretty simple, pretty simple answer. For God so loved the world. I love that guy. And my heart breaks for that guy. And I want to go set him free. Folks, to me, this is the the most important ingredient in evangelism. You can know all the verses. You can have all your theology in order. If you don't love people, it doesn't mean anything. And that might offend some of you. For God so had his theology in order. For God so loved the world. Folks, you can be a great evangelist. You can be a great... uh, soul winner even if you don't have all your verses memorized and figured out if you love people God will use you I promise you now I'm not saying don't study the scriptures I'm not saying don't learn those verses don't don't you know I'm not saying don't learn the Romans road but if folks if we don't have love read 1 Corinthians 13 we don't have love we're nothing Jesus loved people. And that's, in my opinion, why he went to the other side of the lake because he loved this guy and he wanted to see him set free. There's an interesting verse there. Look back to chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Look at verse... Oh, verse 36. Leaving the crowd behind, it says, they took him along just as he was in the boat. They took him along just as he was. Every time I read this story, I pause at that because it just seems out of place. The disciples took him, Jesus. I mean, he's the master. He's the rabbi. He's the one they should be following. It says they took him just as he was. 
What does that mean? Turn to Luke chapter 9. Let me throw something out there. What I think it means. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. It says, When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons, to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he told them, Take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. Did Jesus have 18 suitcases when he went around preaching and teaching? Uh, Peter, you forgot my, my, my flowery suitcase. Put it in the boat. Come on. <laughs> Jesus wasn't a prima donna. He told his disciples, when you go, don't bring anything with you. Just travel light. Jesus didn't have a bunch of stuff. Look further on in Luke chapter 9. Look at verse 58. Jesus said this, Luke 9, 58. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Didn't have a home that he called his own. Didn't even have a bed that he called his own. A pillow. I don't have that stuff. I just travel wherever God tells me to go and he provides for my needs. Jesus and the disciples didn't travel with a bunch of stuff. You say, travel, what's the big deal? Look back at Mark chapter 4. Let's see, verse 38. This is the other part of the story that whenever I get to it, it just seems out of place. It doesn't quite fit. There's this huge storm, and again, if you study it in the original language, it's, it's a massive storm. The boat is nearly swamped. It's just about ready to go down. It's full of water. And verse 38, Jesus is what? Maybe not snoring, but he's, it says he's sleeping, right? And he's sleeping on a what? Pillow. Remember how Jesus told his disciples to go out in Luke chapter 9? Don't bring anything. You don't need that stuff. Itinerant preachers or travelers didn't bring pillows with them, folks. Did Jesus have a blankie and a pillow that he just took along with him for security? I've got girls, and they love their blankies and their pillows, right? Did Jesus, hey, Peter, don't forget my blankie and my pillow. Stuff it in the boat. (laughs) Probably not, right? So what's this pillow, and where did this pillow come from? One more thing I want you to look at. Look at the, and I mentioned this earlier, look at uh, Luke's, version of this account. Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Oh, let's see. Oh, there it is. Verse 27. Luke eight twenty-seven. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. The guy's naked, and the other gospel account says he's screaming as he comes. I like to think about the disciples and what's going on with them when all this is happening, right? Imagine being with Jesus, and you step out of a boat, 
and here comes this naked screaming guy who's bloody and who's possessed by demons. <laughs> I mean, the disciples are diving back into the boat if they've stepped out. They're hiding behind Jesus, right? Gotta be a freaky, incredibly scary situation. It says there that the guy's naked. Read further on in the story. Uh, let's see. Um, verse 35. People went out to see what happened. They came to Jesus. They found the man whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed, and in his right mind. It says they were afraid. He was naked at the beginning. He was dressed at the end. Where did the clothes come from? Remember how Jesus told his disciples to go. Don't bring extra stuff. Don't, bring in, don't even bring an extra tunic, which is what people would use for a pillow if they traveled. But Jesus said, don't even bring one of those. Where'd the clothes come from? Here's what I think happened. And I'm speculating a little bit. But again, there's, there's things here that lead me to believe that as Jesus and his disciples are sitting there in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and they're hearing this guy crying out. They're hearing this guy who's tormented by the enemy, screaming at the top of his lungs. And they're, they're, the hair on the back of their neck probably stood up hearing this guy. And Jesus' heart went out to him. And I think Jesus said, you know what? We're going to go get that guy. We're going to go rescue that guy. We're going to go set him free. And I think Jesus went and put a little bundle of clothes together. Because I know that that guy's naked. And I know what he's going to need after he gets set free. So Jesus puts this bundle together of clothes and he stuffs it in the boat. Nobody knows. And that's why it says in Mark chapter 4, they took him along, Jesus, just as he was. Just him. He didn't have any other stuff. It's just Jesus. But Jesus had, I think, covertly stuffed that little pillow in there, that bundle of clothes, and he used it to sleep on the way over. And they get there and they set this guy free, and Jesus loves him enough, he cares about this guy enough. Hey, here's some clothes, man. Get dressed. How unbelievable to think that God would love us that much, that he cares that much about even that minuscule of a detail. I love that story, folks, because it reminds me that there's people like that that every one of us know. Maybe not to that degree. But you read the story about this, this guy and his plight and his situation. And, I mean, he's, people are harassing him, tying him up with chains. He doesn't have a home to live in. He's been abandoned by people. Everyone's given up on him. He's running around naked. He's living in a, in a graveyard, folks. He's trying to commit suicide. He's bloody. He's just, he's broken. And there's people that you guys know, every one of you who know people just like that, that they're broken and they're abandoned and they're discarded. Some of them are oppressed by the enemy. The enemy still oppresses people. And God has given you everything that you need to be able to go and minister to them and love on them and see them set free. If we go, like the story tells us, if we take Jesus and, and, and go with him, if we bring him along with us in our evangelistic endeavors, folks, he knows exactly what every one of those people that you run into, every one of them, he knows what they need. And if we remember that, Jesus, fill me 
give me what I need to be able to share with this person. Lord, you know what's going on in their life. I don't have a clue, but Lord, you know. Folks, he's going to use you in an unbelievable way. I love this story. I wanted to encourage you guys that scripture is absolutely sufficient in your evangelism. Especially scripture about Jesus. Stories about Jesus. Folks, what happens when you and I study these stories about Jesus, it connects our heart with his, where we understand how much he loves broken people, how much he loves sinners, and we say, oh man, Lord, I don't love people that way sometimes. I get annoyed by people sometimes. I I lose my patience with people. I lose my temper with people. And stories like this remind me that God loves people and he wants to see broken people, sinners, come to salvation. So it puts my, my heart in touch with his. But imagine this, folks. Imagine as you're out sharing and witnessing with people. I'm almost done. Imagine the power of being able to bring a story like this to the table. Say, hey, let me share a story with you about Jesus. People love stories. Put them in touch with who Jesus is and his heart for broken people. Study Jesus. Learn about Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Study his methods. And then be able to pass these stories on to other people. Folks, it's powerful. It's life-changing. There's there's nothing better that we can give people from our toolbox of evangelism than Jesus, right? There's nothing better. Let me end with a story here. It says, Charles Templeton is very sick. Now in his 80s and afflicted by Alzheimer's disease, Templeton hasn't long to live and he knows it. And he's dying with a poignancy of soul that can only be described as truly pathetic. But let us go back across the years for a moment. There was a time when Charles Templeton was one of the most popular sectarian evangelists in the nation. He was a bosom body of Billy Graham and they were at times preaching teammates. During the 50s and 60s, Templeton preached to crowds of 10 to 30,000 nightly. He packed stadiums and thrilled audiences with his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ as he believed it to be. Along the way, however, gnawing doubts began to work in his mind. He started questioning the reality of the Bible, or the reliability of the Bible, excuse me. He wholeheartedly swallowed the Darwinian view of evolutionary history. He now confesses that he always doubted the Genesis account of creation, and he secretly rejected the, the biblical teaching of final punishment for the disobedient. Unquestionably, then, he labored for years under the burden of a progressively hardening heart. He was hypocrisy personified. Finally, he could bear it no longer. He cut loose from it all. To his own words, he bade farewell to God. In 1996, Templeton published his book, the title of which expresses the sentiment just stated. The book's called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And it sets forth the rationale that the former evangelist believes invalidates the credibility of the Bible in general and Christianity in particular. I have owned a copy of Templeton's book for a couple years and have surveyed its contents. There's absolutely nothing new in his arguments. They reflect the same old hackneyed quibbles that infidelity has paraded under the guise of intellectualism for centuries. In fact, Templeton's presentation is far less formidable than that of the more erudite skeptics. But it is not the purpose of this article to review Mr. Templeton's arguments, as fascinating as that would be. Rather, this piece provides a footnote on, the ter- on this terribly sad story. Lee Strobel is an author we have reviewed before, 
Strobel studied law at Yale and is, was the former legal editor of the, of the Chicago Tribune. Having been an atheist at one time, Strobel has combined his legal and investigative skills in producing a couple of valuable books which argue for the divine origin of the Christian movement. It was in this, his recently published volume that I ran across a section that dramatically engaged my attention. In doing research for his latest book, The Case for Faith, Strobel sought out and was granted an interview with Templeton in his penthouse apartment on the 25th floor of a high-rise in Toronto, Canada. During the course of their conversation, Charles Templeton had again vigorously defended his disavowal of God and his rejection of the Bible. There was no apparent chink in the armor of his callous soul. Then Strobel directed the old, the old gentleman's attention to Christ. How would he now assess Jesus at this stage of his life? Strobel says amazingly that Templeton's, quote, body language softened, unquote. His voice took on a, quote, melancholy and reflective tone, and then, incredibly, he said, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my reading. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. Mind you, he's talking about the same teacher who claimed to have existed eternally before Abraham was born, who asserted his oneness of nature with God, the Father, and who allowed men to honor him as Lord and God, which, if these things were not true, makes Jesus the most preposterous and outrageous con man who ever walked the earth. Thousands happily went to their deaths in the most horrible ways imaginable, confessing his deity. But the interview continued. Strobel quietly commented, You sound like you really cared about him. Well, yes, Templeton acknowledged. He's the most important thing in my life. He stammered, I, I adore him. Everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Strobel was stunned. He listened in shock. He said that Templeton's voice began to crack, and then he said, I miss him. With that, the old man burst into tears. With shaking frame, he wept bitterly. Finally, Templeton gained control of his emotions and wiped away the tears. Enough of that, he said, as he waved his hand, as if to suggest that there would be no more questions along that line. Sad indeed. The precious Lord Jesus cannot be so easily dismissed from the mind of one who has had more than a passing acquaintance with him. One may dispute with Christ, reject him, curse him in one breath, and praise him in another, but he is there. Twenty millennia have faded. Twenty millennia have faded into silence, and yet Jesus of Nazareth is still the most eloquent and engaging figure in human history. His ghost haunts even the dark souls of some who profess no faith in the reality that he is the Son of God. Jesus was the chink in Charles Templeton's armor. Folks, when you go out, when you share with people, don't forget to bring Jesus to the table. Don't forget to bring stories of Jesus to the table. He has an effect on people unlike anything else in all of this world. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for you. Why don't you guys stand? Okay, we're going to get weird a little bit. Grab the hand of the person next to you. If it's a, if it's a girl that you have a crush on, it's okay. <laughs> It's a guy that you have a crush on. It's all good. Okay? I'm not going to do anything weird. Okay. Folks, you guys have been recruited. You're God's solution for this world as you bring the message of Christ. Unbelievable that he would choose us, but he has. He's recruited you guys to go into the world, to go into all the world, and to bring the good news.
You're the future of the church. God has entrusted everything to us. So we ask him, Father, we pray. We ask that you would empower us, Lord, by your spirit. As we, as we look at Acts chapter 1, Lord, we're reminded that primarily the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as you told your disciples, was to empower us to witness, Lord. To be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And God, I pray that you would anoint us with your spirit, Father. I pray that as these, these young people would continue to learn and to grow, Father, that you would continue to give them your heart for the lost and for the broken. Lord, as we go out into the world, as we go to class, and as we go to the different things that we're involved in, as we mingle with our family and our friends, Father, I ask and I pray that we wouldn't forget the love and the passion that you have, Lord, for sinners, for broken people. Lord, you love them. You gave everything for them. And we ask, Jesus, that you'd fill us with that same love and concern. God, that we would speak your words, that we would have an instructed tongue that knows the words that would sustain the weary. Lord, I thank you for these young people. I thank you for their excitement and their passion and their their willingness to give up a weekend, Lord, to be here and to learn and to grow. And Father, I ask above all things, Lord, that as they continue on in their walk with you, that they would just continue to grow deeper in their love for you. Lord, we just want to walk with you. We just want to know you. We want to follow after you. We want to be covered in the dust of our rabbi. So, Lord, touch us, fill us, anoint us. Lord, use us for your great purpose. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.